This is the abridged version of the Aidan O'Shea interview for an Irishman abroad to hear the full uncut version, including his thoughts on changing the game, changing the rules of the game, refs and latent bias. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad and sign up. You'll also gain access to hundreds of other episodes of our show and two extra weekly episodes in full. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Well, for those of you that don't know, Aidan O'Shea is a three-time All-Star and captain of the Mayo senior football team. There is a bit of Kobe Bryant about the Aidan O'Shea story in that he was playing at a senior level way before most people do. And he possessed skills that were far beyond his years. And he's had to deal with a media spotlight like no other every step of the way throughout his illustrious career. And I've probably spent three years trying to get him to sit down for this interview. So, so happy we got it here today. And towards the end, as I say in the extra stuff, we get to talk about youth mental health, coaching young players and what he sees in young players now. And uh, the mental side of that is, is crucial and the mental side of the Mayo story is crucial. And it ties in with our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie, the Centre for Youth Mental Health in Ireland. They do incredible work saving young lives and changing young people's lives in Ireland every day of this pandemic and beyond. And they're struggling to cope with the demand for their services. If you can help them out or if you need a bit of help, head over to Jigsaw.ie. Aidan O'Shea, it's fantastic to finally have you on Irishman Abroad. I know we've we've been in touch a few times about it. And when you get in touch and, or I get in touch with you and you, I realise you're being asked to do so much stuff all the time. Is that the part of playing this sport at this high level that nobody tells you about? Or are you gradually eased into the idea that everybody's going to want something from you once you reach this level? Yeah, I think there's a bit of both. And I think when you're younger, when people come asking, there's probably, there's, it's, there's a nice part to it. I suppose you're like, oh, geez, it's new and it's fresh and, mm. you know, things are all, see. Um, and then I suppose it gets a little bit kind of, uh, when it comes a bit more constant and a bit more, um, uh, demanding, I suppose, at times, I suppose you kind of have to just set out boundaries for yourself and I suppose realize what's important, what's not important. But yeah, I think from a media perspective, you've got to understand as well that there's that's part of part of the game um, in terms of the sport we play, the coverage it gets, and and also understand that people who maybe seek an interview or or whatever it is, it's it's also because they're interested in you maybe as a character or a footballer or whatever it is. 
But like so many times, like I can, like I've obviously listened and read to a lot of stuff that you've done and people you've spoken to over the years. And I always get the impression that just like so many athletes, you can only say so much. How many times do you get asked questions where you think, I'd love to tell you what I really think on this? Or do you actually have a a switch that you flip when you go into media chats where you go, well, that's off limit in, in the same way as, you know, teachers curse like sailors when they're at home. And then when they go in to talk to the kids, they'd never drop an F-bomb. Yeah, again, I think that I probably that filter when you're young doesn't really kick in. And then I suppose once bitten, twice shy in a couple of instances that maybe over a period of time, you know, you said something that when you came out of your mouth, it, it didn't it didn't sound a whole pile or it didn't, it, you know, in the context in which I was saying it, maybe it, it wasn't taken as it was meant. And then all of a sudden it's, it's a bigger news story or it's used for a couple of days and you're kind of going, well, I didn't really mean that. And the person who asked that question knows I didn't mean that. But all of a sudden now it's it's a story for for three or four days off the back of me. And you kind of go, well, you know, maybe what's the point? Maybe the filter then all of a sudden naturally increases as you kind of go through those experiences so there's a bit of both there's a bit of um there's a bit of you get a bit more mature and a bit wiser and yeah there's a bit of the kind of the same old question lark and you're kind of going yeah you know how how do you want me to answer this one this time it's uh you know you've asked me this for the last 10 years <laughs> yeah. um, do you think Mayo can win the All-Ireland yeah I do that's why I'm playing so um how do you want me to turn that around in three or four words for you the 10th time you know yeah so there is like there's obviously fatigue to that and there's a bit of uh there's a bit of you know wearing down i mean there's a headline that i saw i can't remember what site it was on it might have been journal or the 42 where they you know they led with the headline that the middle part of my career i stopped enjoying it when they run with the headline like that there must be a there must be a part of you that goes, oh feck! Like I mean, I said so many other things, but this is the this is the part that you choose to run with. Like, what was your reaction when you saw that? First of all, yeah, I remember I remember seeing that. I'm actually got very good where if I do a media day or something like that, I just literally do not. St- I try and attempt to see nothing for the next couple of days because, um, to your point exactly, you're kind of going, oh Jesus. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, no, I think um, in that instance, I was kind of like, yeah, that that was a long interview. And, you know, what I was trying to get across was that, you know, sometimes that spell kind of in the middle of my career was just a little bit, there's a lot going on. And, you know, I found it, I found it hard to enjoy it as much as I, I would have once enjoyed it. And maybe now I appreciate it and enjoy it a bit more for what it is, I think. And then. You know, again, when you read that article, it sounds like, oh, gee, well, why is he playing? Would be the first question I'd ask if he wasn't enjoying it, you know. And, mm. you know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't the context of, of how I spoke about it on, on that, those interviews. But again, you know, these are things that I, you know, you can't control in terms of a headline or, you know, if somebody was to listen to this podcast, they're probably going to take the one line that garners the most attention to yeah. try and drag people in. So, yeah. You, you understand that and, you know, you, you have to be a bit wary of that. But then there's the other, then there's probably a bunch of other people that go, well, does he expect it to be fun? Like, why should it be fun? 
I mean, you know, like I know we both watched The Last Dance and that you're a basketball head as well. And I just thought like just the window in, I mean, that's half the reason that you get asked to do these interviews is because people want to know what's it like inside the bubble? What's what what is it like for the Bulls traveling around and what does practice look like? I mean, I don't know if you were the same as me, but watching The Last Dance, I was most interested in the behind the scenes footage of actual training with somebody as driven as Michael Jordan. That stuff, though, is is sacred. And he obviously put a, a kibosh on anybody ever seeing that footage up until The Last Dance because of how sacred it is. Do you relate to that? Because uh, you know, the t- we're always talking about the tightly knit thing in Mayo and how, and same in Dublin and anywhere, that you really need to protect that inner sanctum of training and that family feel that's in there. Yeah, on the on the MJ thing, I'd say the only disappointment out of the out of the documentary is that we didn't get to see more of that because yeah. you know I compare it to say the Formula One like, and you get literally all access of what's going on in terms of the background and it's really enjoyable. I think we, you know, really missed a bit of that intimacy. I know we got a slight bit of it, but I think, you know, for a career that spans so long, we probably didn't get to see as much as we'd like. But yeah, to your question, I think, um, yeah, I think people are very protective of it. I think there's, I think there's a bit of it, there's a bit of the GA about it though. I think, you know, I think, you know, we're such a small country. Um, you look at America and, the way their relationship is with the media, like you have somebody literally with a microphone in your face the second you walk back into the locker room. It's a little bit different. Um, but for us, yeah, I, I think you keep uh, what goes on in the four walls quite uh, quite close to your chest and um, you'd expect your teammates to do the same. You know, it's like any sport, you know, things happen behind there that you don't want other people to know about. You know, it's not all better roses there's always going to be ups and downs good moments bad moments there's challenge there's you know difficult conversations have to be had but you know i don't see a need for us to share that with anybody as we're, we're all in there trying to do our best for for the same common cause and, and you know it's a battle at times but um i don't think that uh you know that's an area an environment that we need to to, to sh- openly share with people well, you see, I think that the last dance is is kind of proof that it's still going to be fascinating. And I know that you're saying that we don't want to share that so that lads are comfortable in there and that the, the group is tighter knit. And certain players did feel betrayed by the last dance. I know Pippen talked about how badly he was betrayed in the in the whole thing. And I, I just wonder why with... GA, there isn't a kind of at some point they're like a statute of limitations that at some point it comes out that this was said and that you know this was what was actually happening. I know that there's leaks and all of that, and that seems to be a a thing now that this information has has leaked out. But why do you think it it, it never all comes out? Like is is this bond and this kind of uh, omerta among all of you to, that strong that you would never ever betray that understanding of secrecy? Yeah, yeah, like it's. It's not a mad secret, like, as in, you know, it's not as, uh, 
we're not hiding anything uh, no more than anybody else. But um, I just think that maybe there's a comfort in the privacy. As you said, um, you know, I, it's hard to know. I think uh, there's a bit of paranoia in the GA in terms of that access and that kind of sharing mentality, whereas, you know, even cross-player across manager you, you know you don't you see in other sports you know the kind of talk about NBA you know Popovich has managed or he's been involved or had players other coaches involved with him for years and now they're at other clubs and or franchises and he's very pally and he shares with them and your players you know you see players across this uh, different franchises being very open-minded to each other and you know there's a huge level of respect yeah they, there's a, a rivalry there but there's a huge level of respect I don't know the answer to why why that is in the GA. It's it's nearly it's nearly borderline hostile at times. Mm. Um, I mean that across all areas. Like it's not just player v player or manager v manager. It's nearly that kind of way with the media. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of we got to keep everything tight, and then can't tell anybody anything. And um, I, I I don't like. I mean, I'm not saying that's the reason for one's team's success or not, but I think it's just it kind of festered out of that mentality that's in the GA, which I'm not necessarily saying it's healthy. It probably isn't. I think, you know, it's just everybody's looking for that small gain or uh, back to that kind of parochial, local, small, ultimately a really small, you know, there's 32 teams, there's 60 players, or 30 players on a team. So it's very small group that we're talking about, you know? Yeah, like it's so, uh, it's such a peculiar and unique thing in its own way and, and I guess all of these things are locked into the the tradition of as you say over the garden fence that you don't want the next town over hearing about what you have planned or what you're working on let's go right back though uh, to St. Gerard's in Castlebar where you know you first start realising oh, I'm not the same as other lads <laughs> let's put it that way when did you first have the experience of realising that you were above average let's say at athletics yeah, well at that stage I was I was probably playing a lot of sports at that when I was up until probably 14 I was playing uh, still playing rugby and then when I went into secondary school, I continued playing three sports, um, football, basketball and soccer. Yeah, I probably I probably knew before then, um, before I went into secondary school, um, that it was a, a little bit different or that my skill set was a little bit different. And I think that was probably born out of the fact that I was always kind of seeking a challenge. Or I have an older, obviously an older brother in Shamie, and I think that lends itself to just that kind of, I want to play with him. I want to do what he's doing. Mm. Uh, I want to be as good as him right now, not in three years' time, because he's three years older than me. Um, I want to play with his friends. Um, so I suppose that continued, that kind of, even as a, in my early years, as an eight, nine, ten-year-old, I had that kind of mindset. So I kind of knew then at my own level when I was playing that I was um, I was quite decent, I suppose. Um, and... Then I suppose went in St. Charles, um, and again, um, it's probably kind of that next step of evolution that you go from kind of that local, my local school, into a 
bigger school with teams, you know, there's probably four or five different feeder clubs into that school and you're kind of going, well, this is the next step of, well, who else is out there that I don't know about? Or, and that kind of challenge again comes. And there was uh, one player uh, from Castlebar who's in the road I would have known of, but hadn't really come across significantly at underage, was David Joyce. And he he went on to run at the Junior Olympics and became a professional soccer player at Birmingham. And like he was kind of like, we kind of met our match a little bit. Um, right. well, we were both kind of, he was exceptional. Um, he was, he could run all day. He was very talented. He was fast. Yeah, I probably had little, we were probably similar size. I kind of stretched quickly. Um, I probably had a little bit of a better skill set at the time. And, um, but that was kind of that kind of little bit of rivalry that I kind of nearly needed at it, that stage. And I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I suppose I kind of knew then, like when I went to first year, it was kind of me and him as a as a two and he was with us until junior cert and then he went away to play soccer and in terms of the other sports like when I came into first year straight away I was playing with the second years in basketball and you know by that straight away like it was kind of a, a thing that Aiden had come in and it was a, a plus for this, the second year team you know so I suppose yeah I, I never really had a moment where I said oh I'm, I'm actually good at this or I'm better than other people at sport or whatever it is it was just I suppose a natural progression um from my years and obviously Shami plays a big role in this and I think that uh if we were to go through all the old episodes of Irishman Abroad the amount of times I hear my older brother used to knock the bollocks out of me in the back garden as you know a precursor to uh, establishing sporting excellence it's nearly uh, it's nearly <laughs> essential to have uh that bar to see it even just to see that this is how good it can it can be or you can be uh, yeah. ahead of you I, I read yeah I read an article I think there was an article or a thing released recently about that about sibling that in high performing athletes that there's, there's some crazy stat about how there's a probability of them having a, another sibling who is who's also high performing athlete you know if you look at the Serena Williams of the world mm. it's an example like so and there is, um, I suppose, proof in the pudding there, right? Well, l- l- tell me a little bit, though, about the wars with uh, Shamie. Like, did it ever get out of hand? Was there ever uh, your parents coming out separating the two uh, I don't remember them being... I, I remember a little bit, right, yeah. But I think, um, yeah, there was there was obviously hugely competitive. I think, like, childhood back then was... Um, I, I say it like I'm ancient, but <laughs> back then, you know, like, it wasn't... It wasn't PlayStations and, and TV and Netflix. Like, you know, I'd be dragged in or me and Shamie and Connor be dragged in from home and out the back. We were lucky to grow up with a big garden and loads of walls. So, you know, it's, it was, you know, the, the light was going down. It was, come on, come in for dinner or I'm going back out. No, you're not. It's time for bed or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> but in terms of the Shamie, yeah, like, you know, dad was involved with the local club when we came here and, you know, I was water by it whatever it was, five or six. So again, they go into those kind of things, going to every training session, watching other people, uh, watching adults play a sport, mimicking them and trying to mimic Shamey. Again, the arguments were probably more like when he was going to play with his mates, like, you know, Aiden, leave me alone. You know, I'm, I'm a cool brother. <laughs> go away. Like, you know, uh, you're only a kid. But um, yeah, we had a couple of arguments and we had a couple of battles. I remember that and, Obviously, again, that only it only kind of copper fastens your mentality a bit, to be honest, because, you know, whether it be him being stronger than me and being able to push me out of the way or, you know, 
beg me beg for mercy and, and go down on my knees you're kind of going i'll get you i'm going to get you someday i'm going to get you someday, you know and uh i think that's you know i had a, probably an awful temper as a young fellow kind of growing up I, I couldn't deal with losing so you know if i lost i just couldn't couldn't didn't sit well with me as even as a young really really young fellow. i remember <clears throat> we played this local competition uh, we played at the end of every year in the club at under eight or tens it's called the, the curry cup there's a shop in bravely called curries and uh it's just kind of like as it is end of year it's cross under 10 under eights and under 10 so mm. that you know it's kind of families come out and my brother happened to be on the opposition team my younger brother and uh you know i was under 10 so i was you know i would have been expected you know they even out the teams pretty much mm-hmm. but i couldn't handle he was obviously if i was nine he was six so he was on one of the under he was one of the under eights on the under 10 teams and uh he was in goal uh, of all places and he their team ended up winning and i just couldn't handle like i remember playing them in the final and then him in goal and then beat us and i was like well how that did I, I just couldn't handle like the last Curry Cup and he wins and I think he got a black eye and everything on the day from hitting the post and diving the ball or something like that and I was like he was a hero and I was like god damn you do you know but that was the kind of as a young fella I just couldn't handle the mm. the fact of losing and uh, yeah. you know I think obviously losing is is great it creates in lots of ways it makes you know obviously toughens you up a bit and it, it makes you want it more and that and I got plenty of fit as a young fella yeah I mean I think uh I've heard like I've heard various different versions of the same story right that thing of kind of feeding that appetite to win by through losses right and you're looking at a Mayo team above you right as the you know the top of the tree like that's where you want to be yet you must see early on that to be up there with those guys, there comes, as we started out saying, there comes a, a real kind of dark side to it or a kind of there's a double-edged sword to it that the pressure involved. You must have watched these games that they were playing in and heard some of the abuse that they received and obviously seen the adulation that they received. What was your earliest memory of seeing those lads? And was your takeaway more I'd love to have that tracksuit <laughs> rather than Jesus, can you imagine being roared at like that by complete strangers? Yeah, it's a funny one in terms of, say, the Mayo and the end goal because for me, again, mom and dad are from Kerry, so um, I kind of grew up on the back of like the 70s Kerry's team and, and dad talking about them and mm. then the 2000s Kerry team of that great team, I would have just followed them everywhere and probably more so like Mayo probably weren't as successful through the thousands. We had the 04 and 06, but outside of that, we probably weren't very successful or consistent. And in terms of my memories of going to games, it was to go and see Kerry. Like I have memories of Kerry losing a league game in, in Longford to lay go like crazy stuff, which must be like 2002 or something like that. But they're my memories more so than going to Mayo games as in, I did go to Mayo games, but as I say, the, the frequency of them wasn't as much. But I, I never, I never thought of the the abuse or the or the crowd noise or the negativity piece. All I could think, like, and maybe it was just me being young and 
naive maybe, but all I could think about was getting there and, and being on that pitch and playing. Like that's I just couldn't see anything else but that happening or I knew I'd one day play on that stage and I, I couldn't nothing else kind of really mattered or anything else around it, whether it be the tracksuit or, or the crowd. I, I just wanted to play and I had this thing that I and you know you People would say, relax, don't, you know, don't wish your life away. But I always just wanted to play now. I couldn't, I couldn't understand why I can't play now. Like, so like, <clears throat> again, I was 16, 17. I'm like, I, I want to play now. I want to play now. Like, I couldn't, I, I found it hard to wait. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And like, I remember being, I think it was 15 and I played with the club, started playing with the club, I think 14 or 15, senior level. And I, I just, I loved that being able to play. I wanted to play for as many teams against as many players from different age groups and yeah similar to the senior setup like when i was 16 i remember i remember her we played um we played a league game for brafie on the sunday and mayo had played on the saturday night in cork under lights i think they they might have won or drawn i'm not sure and um they actually played all right um but we we're playing balnan this sunday morning i think at like one or twelve one o'clock and i was 16 and I think Pat Hart, um, Morton McGarry, Ger Brady, good few players that would have played for me for a long time. I played the night before. Now, I think they might have lost because I was a bit brash as a young fella and I might have had a few words for them the next morning. <laughs> um, but again, like I went out, I played well. Um, I kicked three points and I kicked two winning frees. And the 16-year-old, and I was like, well, sure, if I can do it here on a Saturday, Sunday morning, against these fellas but why can't I do it right now do you know and I, again in my mind like obviously I understand now why I couldn't do it right there and then but in my head it was like I want to do it now and I, I, I struggled with that I wanted to do it. I was always chasing that something do you know and I, I think that to your point about did anything ever kind of defer me from trying to get to play for Mayo Seniors or whoever it was no there was nothing that ever kind of cropped up that said geez that mightn't be, be mm. for you I, I always kind of felt that that was it was always something I wanted to do yeah, I mean, at the moment I'm reading this uh, uh, Roland Lazenby book. Uh, Roland has been on the podcast a couple of times and on the anniversary of Kobe's death, we had him on to talk about the life of Kobe Bryant. And, you know, he's one of his friends and biographer. And he talked about a similar kind of impatience that, like, you just couldn't talk to Kobe out of anything. That, like, if he decided that that's what was going to happen, you mean you may as well just get on board because he was going to wreck your head until it happened. And that, you know, that kind of, he said it came naturally from within him. But there is an urge to perform that comes from somewhere in all of us, right? You you wanted to be on the biggest stage possible playing this, this game. When Paul Meskell was on the show, we talked about him playing for Kildare and how... You know, he just loved the idea of the lights on and uh, let's go big crowd. Let's put on a show. <laughs> and from from my own perspective as a stand up, I didn't connect the dots that the reason why I was playing basketball and that I loved, you know, all the backstage preparation for it was because I wanted to be in showbiz. That that was just something that I, I just loved the idea of, as you say, performing on the big day with everybody looking at you. With that in mind, though, I suffered from stage fright to a degree because of when the big day arrived then. I was like, I was nearly bound up by the, you know, the impetus to perform at my best. 
and not let people down and not make mistakes. Did that ever happen? Like, does that, had that ever happened? Or do you, I'm sure it's happened. I mean, everybody, it's happened to everybody. But when was your first memory of wanting it so bad to perform well on the day that you nearly got in your own way? Yeah, again, I think that there's that, you know, the kid mindset of like, you know, a mistake happens. If you if you're a child, you make a mistake. You don't think about it because you're a kid. You don't think of the the negative or the consequence or the oh my god, I missed a shot. Yeah, I'll get and another chance I'll, in a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you don't even think about it that way. You just go, oh, I took a shot. I went wide. Who cares? You know, <laughs> yeah. you, the child just the child doesn't think. And I, I suppose I, I like to think that I maintain that mindset. Well, there you have it, the abridged version to hear the rest of that conversation with Aidan O'Shea, a full extra 60 minutes with him. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I'll be back on Tuesday with Sonia O'Sullivan for the Irishman Running Abroad, our running and wellness podcast, which is fast becoming my favourite podcast of the week. So many laughs with Sonia as we get into the pro tips and her coaching for how to go from not being a runner to being a runner. Uh, she's certainly taken me on that journey and I'm doing it all for Jigsaw.ie, our chosen charity partner for the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge to run 2,000 kilometres in the space of a year. We've raised thousands already. Come on over and listen to that on Tuesday or suggest a guest. Get in touch with me, Podcast at gmail.com. That's the way to contact the show if you want to talk to me, if you want to suggest a guest, I will reply to your email personally. Podcast at gmail.com. Brian Connolly is on production. John Mar does extra research. Tina and Mikey make it all possible. And as I said, the full interview can be heard on patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad. Patrons have made off like bandits this week. In fairness, they got the Irishman abroad online comedy club. We've got another episode of that going out live next Friday with our special guest, Rory Scoville, one of the best comics in the world today, taking to our stage next Friday night. Returnofthecrack.com is the place to go to reserve your ticket.